Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. The Peter Schiff Show. Thanks to Ladder for supporting my podcast. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance without leaving your home. Just go to ladderlife.com slash gold today to see if you're instantly approved. Well, the S&P 500 and the Dow both backing off from the all-time record highs that they set Friday last week. In fact, the Dow Jones recovered from a just over 500-point intraday loss to settle down just 282 points, 0.79%. S&P made a similar move, not quite as big, down 0.71%. The NASDAQ and the Russell 2000 were weaker. NASDAQ down just off 1%. Russell 2000, almost 1.2%. Seems like the companies that are more focused on the U.S. economy were the ones that fared worse in today's market. And I think a lot of the selling was a reaction to comments that were made in an interview following Friday's close. On CNBC, Steve Leisman interviewed Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren And Rosengren expressed pretty solid support to begin the taper in the fall. And of course, the fall is almost here. And so this may be one of the first of potentially many taper tantrums to come as the markets are starting to price in what they believe to be tighter monetary policy. In fact, the dollar index had a big up day today, up 0.51. Dollar index climbing back above the 93 handle 
closing at 93.13. Gold and silver on the defensive, although gold only off a few bucks, not much damage, but look at the gold mining stocks, in particular the junior mining stocks, GDXJ, down another 2%, hitting a new 52-week low. But, you know, I watched that interview with Rosengren, and I have a completely different reaction. Rather than thinking that the Fed is getting ready to tighten monetary policy, my takeaway was it's more likely that they're getting ready to ease. Forgetting about the taper. Even if they start to taper, that's not really tightening up on policy. Basically, all the taper means is that the Federal Reserve monetizes a little bit less U.S. government debt in the future than it is monetizing in the present. So in other words, they're still pouring gasoline on an inflationary fire. They're just pouring a little bit less gasoline than they were. But any additional gasoline is going to make the fire burn hotter. So I don't care if they taper, they are still adding fuel to the inflation fire. The only way to put it out is to actually reverse quantitative easing and go to quantitative tightening, but that's not going to happen. But I think the more important comments were reserved for interest rates because when Rosengrand was talking to Steve Leisman and they're talking about the taper and yes, I think the conditions are right for a taper. We've made some substantial progress and so therefore I think we should start tapering and the fall would be a good time to do it. Then Leisman asked him, okay, so what about rate hikes? I mean, you guys made some emergency rate cuts, right? We're at zero. So when are you going to start raising rates or when are you going to start thinking about raising rates was the specific question. And then Rosengren responded by saying, well, you know, the criteria for rate hikes are very, very different than the criteria for tapering, meaning the Fed is ready to taper, but they're not prepared to actually start raising rates. So what are the criteria? Well, Rosengren said he has two criteria that are necessary for the first rate hike, meaning that we're going to stay at zero. And we're not going to have any rate hikes until the Fed is satisfied that this criteria has been met. The first one, and I'm not making this up, is that the Fed needs to be sure, they need to be confident that the outcomes that they've already seen are consistent with inflation staying slightly above 2% in 2022. Could you believe that? I mean, they're waiting for proof that inflation is going to be above 2% in 2022. It's going to be way above 2% in 2022. And first of all, Rosengrant doesn't even care about the inflation in 2021. He's already looking to 2022. So whatever is happening right now, the fact that inflation is already triple 2%, even if you buy the government's numbers, which are understating it. But what he is saying is, look, 2021 doesn't even count. We just think all this is transitory. And so we don't think it has anything to do with what might happen in 2022. We're just hoping that in 2022, we get inflation just above 2% because we're afraid that inflation might be lower than 2% in 2022, which makes absolutely no sense. If you think about how much prices have already gone up in 2021, wouldn't the Fed welcome a little relief? I mean, their original description of inflation as being transitory, I think what that meant or what they meant or what people thought they meant 
was that the price increases that we're seeing now would go away in the future. So if we really have big price gains in 2021, let's say prices end up going 8% up in 2021. Wouldn't it be good if prices dropped a little bit in 2022? Would the Fed really be so upset if we got a 1% or 2% drop following an 8% rise? I mean, that would seem to qualify the big increase more as transitory if we actually gave some of those price gains back in 2021. No, the Fed wants to make sure before it raises rates, he wants to make sure that whatever price increases we have in 2021 are followed by more price increases in 2022 and beyond. And he wants to make sure that the extra price hikes that we get in 2022 are above 2%. He doesn't want to take any chances that they're below 2%, meaning if we have 6, 7, 8% inflation in 2021, he wants to make sure that consumers don't catch a break in 2022 with only a 1% increase. He wants to make sure that the increase is slightly above 2%. The whole thing is laughable because it's clear that inflation is probably going to be well north of 2% in 2022. And the Fed is just making up an excuse why it's not going to be raising rates. And of course, the most ridiculous part of it all is that rates are at zero. So you're telling me that we can't move them up now to a quarter of a percent or a half of a percent, that they have to stay at zero, that that's where the Fed has to leave them while they're trying to make sure that inflation stays slightly above 2% next year, even though it's already way above 2% this year. And then What Rosengrant also said is that he wants to wait and make sure that inflation stays above 2% in 2022, meaning that he's going to wait until the end of the year, right? He wants to see how 2022 plays out because he wants to make sure that inflation is slightly above 2%. So he's going to keep his powder dry. The Fed's going to keep rates at zero until the end of 2022 so they can look back and be satisfied with the outcome that inflation stayed slightly above 2%. Now, of course, what happens if it's way above 2%? My bet would be, well, they'll just chalk that up to another transitory year and they'll say, well, now we got to make sure that inflation stays above 2% in 2023 because, you know, we can't really count 2022 because it just turns out that the transition lasted a little longer than we thought. But, you know, we really, really, really better hold off on these rate hikes to make extra certain that we continue to have inflation slightly above 2%, even though it is miles above 2%. But the other criteria that Rosengrant outlined was full employment. He said that before the Fed will start raising rates, the economy needs to be at full employment. And he said that the 5.4% unemployment rate we have now doesn't qualify, that that's too high. We need a much lower rate. Of course, what exactly constitutes full employment is hard to say. I know at one time they thought full employment was a 5% unemployment rate. So by that criteria, I think we're almost there. But I think Rosengrant knows that the unemployment numbers that we use now are complete BS. And the actual rate of unemployment is actually well above the official 5.4% level. But the concept of full employment, I mean, it's all in the eye of the beholder. So there's no real way to have a set unemployment rate that would constitute full employment. So it really gives the Fed an out 
to never raise interest rates because they could always claim that whatever the unemployment rate is, it doesn't constitute full employment. But again, what makes no sense whatsoever is to say, okay, we don't think that we're at full employment. We're not that far away. I mean, we don't have high unemployment, right? If you're going to believe these numbers. So unemployment isn't high. We're just not at full employment. Does that really justify 0% interest rates? Because even a 1% or 2% interest rate would still be very stimulative, especially when you have inflation that is well above that because you're still having negative real interest rates, even if the Fed were to raise rates to 1% or 2%. How can you say that a 5.4% unemployment rate is so high, so far away from full employment that it justifies keeping interest rates at zero and we can't even raise interest rates to a quarter of a percent? until we're at full employment? Why? I mean, we weren't at full employment before the pandemic and the Fed was raising rates. What's the difference? If they could raise rates before COVID when we weren't at full employment, why can't they raise them now? Basically, what the Fed is doing is letting everybody know that they're never going to raise rates. I mean, if you read between the lines, and it's not that difficult to read between these lines, that's what they're saying, because these conditions are never going to exist. If they're not raising rates now, they're never going to raise rates. And so they're just making up excuses why they can't. The reason the Fed was able to raise interest rates before COVID, even though we weren't at full employment, was because the bubble wasn't as big. They just printed so much money, created a much bigger bubble that is now far more dependent on 0% interest rates than ever before that they can't even attempt to lift interest rates off of zero without immediately popping it the way they were able to do the last time. So they have to make up one excuse after another. But if you actually listen to what this guy said, you would come away with the conclusion that no rate hikes are ever going to come. And that is more important than whether or not the Fed begins to taper in the fall. Because if the Fed has already shown its cards that it's not going to hike rates because it's got this laughable excuse that it wants to wait to make sure that inflation is above 2% when it's already substantially above 2%. You don't need any more proof that inflation is going to stay above 2%. What should be concerning the Fed is that it goes much higher than 2%. Any rational central bank faced with a combination of rapidly rising prices and a 5.4% unemployment rate would already be tightening monetary policy. The reason that the Fed is not is because it can't, and so it's making up excuses why it's not. But the real takeaway from this interview should be, again, rate hikes are never going to happen, and so it doesn't even matter about the taper because it's only a matter of time before the taper reverses because the government is going to keep on spending new money, and ultimately the Fed is going to be called on to monetize it. I mean, for example, over the weekend, we learned that President Biden has just authorized the largest increase in food stamp assistance in U.S. history. In the stroke of a pen, everybody who's getting food stamps is now going to get 25% more each time they get a payment. That is a huge increase. Where's that money going to come from? The government hasn't raised any taxes to fund this 25% increase in food stamps. No. The Fed's just going to print the money. 
And of course, ironically, because of all the money that the Federal Reserve is going to print to finance this increase in food stamp spending, as well as increases in other government plans that are in the pipeline, like infrastructure or the other huge three and a half trillion dollar bill, all this inflation that's going to be created to pay for this is going to make the price of food go up a lot more than 25%. So even though people are going to be getting a 25% increase in their food stamps, they're still going to have less money to buy food because food prices will go up by more than 25%. And by the way, they're not really food stamps. They are money stamps because you can use your food stamps for anything. I mean, technically you have to use them to buy food, But there's nothing that says that you can't buy food for somebody else. And then the person who you bought food for just gives you cash. And then you buy drugs or whatever you want to buy with that cash. So it's really money. And of course, if somebody had money that they were intending to spend on food, but then they get food stamps from the government and they use their food stamps to buy the food instead, now they have extra money that can be used to buy something else. Whereas if they spent that money on food, they wouldn't have had the extra money. So the addition of food stamps in effect increases the money supply that is available to bid up prices for consumer goods. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online master's of social work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. So food stamps are, in effect, part of the money supply. They really should be counted as money because they're as good as money or as bad as money, depending on your perspective. And so creating new food stamps is putting new money into circulation, and that is also going to bid up prices. But when you see stuff like this, you know that it's only a matter of time before the Federal Reserve has to ramp up its QE program, even if it ends up slightly tapering the program first it's ultimately going to ramp it up and it's never going to get to the point where it starts raising interest rates. Just listen to what Rosengrand said on CNBC yesterday. You can probably find a copy of it on the internet. But based on that, there's not going to be any rate hikes. And I've already known this anyway. I've been saying all along that the Fed is just bluffing when it comes to these rate hikes, that they're all bark and no bite. And this interview with Rosengrand proves me right. Meanwhile, I continue to read 
all kinds of nonsense about how inflation is a good thing. In fact, they seem like they're trying to soften us up and get us willing to accept a higher inflation. I mean, they know they can't do anything to stop it. In fact, they're doing everything to create it. So they might as well butter us up and get us to accept the idea of high inflation. I read this article and the title was something like higher inflation could produce a jobs boom. Like this is going to be great for jobs because the idea is that fighting inflation with raising interest rates or some type of restrictive monetary policy, that's going to destroy jobs. So therefore, allowing more inflation will create jobs. And the article said that it would lead to higher real wages. He thought it would reduce income inequality by helping to create more jobs and better paying jobs. And the article I read specifically said it would reduce inequality for minorities, meaning that inflation would particularly benefit African-Americans and help close the wage gap between African-Americans and whites. All of this, of course, pure BS. The opposite is true. The people that suffer the most from inflation are workers. Uh, Real wages fall as a result of inflation. Nominal wages may rise, but real wages will fall And it is the poor, it is the middle class that gets hit hardest by rising consumer prices. In fact, all the inflation that everybody is so excited about, or in particular, whoever wrote this article and the people that he was quoting, inflation is simply going to widen the wealth gap even further because it will make the assets of the rich more valuable and wipe out the debt that they incurred to accumulate them. While at the same time, it's gonna wipe out the value of the savings and the wages of the poor and the middle class. So rather than narrowing the wealth inequality gap, it is going to widen it dramatically. Imagine to believe that inflation is somehow a good thing, that you can create wealth and create prosperity through inflation, that just printing money and having prices go up, that's somehow, that's the ticket, right? That's how you create good jobs and that's how you bring prosperity to the downtrodden is by destroying the value of their savings and their wages and making their cost of living go up. It is utter nonsense that people believe this and you don't even have to understand economics so you just look at history. You can look at all these countries that have had high inflation and they've been economic disasters. The countries that have the greatest amount of prosperity are generally the countries that have the lowest inflation rate. So low inflation and prosperity go hand in hand. High inflation and poverty, they go hand in hand. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance. In the past, if you wanted to get life insurance, you had to drive across town, sit through a sales pitch, fill out tons of paperwork, and then wait six to eight weeks to find out if you've been approved. Not to mention agents trying to hard sell you on whole life or bundle your policy with other insurance policies like car insurance driving up the cost. But now with Ladder, you can get life insurance without leaving your home. When you apply for $3 million or less in coverage, it's all taken care of digitally. There's no doctor's offices, no needles, or no paperwork. So if you're between the ages of 20 and 60, 
and you're looking for life insurance coverage, Ladder makes it quick and easy. And most importantly, term life insurance is the only life insurance you want to buy. You don't need whole life because why buy insurance that covers the whole of your life when the key is to have a policy that covers you during the years where other people like children depend on you financially. So the way to maximize your insurance bang for your buck to get the most amount of coverage for the least amount of money is by using term. And then you take the money you save by not buying expensive whole life insurance and invest that money and you'll get a much better return if you separate your investments from your insurance. So go to ladderlife.com gold today and see if you're instantly approved. That's ladder, L-A-D-D-E-R life.com gold to see if you're instantly approved. And more evidence of the negative impact that inflation continues to have on the U.S. economy were evident in some of the economic data that came out earlier today. We got the retail sales numbers for July, and the consensus was for a slight decline of 0.2, and that followed a 0.6% rise in the prior month. Now, the 0.6, that was ratcheted up to 0.7, so a little bit higher than initially reported. But instead of falling by 0.2, we saw 1.1% decline. So basically five times the size of the decline that had been expected. In fact, if you take out vehicles, the expectation was for a rise of 0.2. We got a drop of 0.4, though they did revise up the prior month from 1.3 to 1.6. X vehicles and gas, the drop was even bigger. They were, in fact, expecting a drop of 0.3, and we got a drop of 0.7, more than twice what had been expected, although we came off a slightly upwardly revised 1.3% gain in the prior month. But why did we have such a big drop in retail sales? And remember, retail sales are not adjusted for price. So the extent to which prices are going up Those increases are part of retail sales. So one of the reasons that retail sales can go up is because the items that people are buying retail are just higher priced. So even if you're not buying more stuff, but you're spending more money to buy the stuff, that's going to make retail sales go up. In fact, if prices go up a lot, retail sales can go up even if the volume of sales is going down because people are buying more stuff that costs more money. And in fact, one of the reasons that people are buying less stuff that costs more money, and one of the reasons that people buy less stuff is because when things cost more money, you can't afford to buy as much stuff because people have a certain amount of money. And if the price of some goods go up, well, then they don't have as much money left over to buy other goods. And I think that's really what's going on here. I think the reason that retail sales are falling is because consumers can't afford to buy as much now that prices are higher, and so they're cutting back. And of course, another reason that sales are falling is because some of the money has run out. A lot of the people who were shopping were using stimulus money. Well, the stimulus money is gone. They've already spent all that money, and they have nothing left, so they're cutting back on their spending. So you're already starting to see inflation take a toll on retail sales. Now, of course, if the Federal Reserve reacts to falling retail sales, if we get more stimulus, right, if Congress passes more stimulus so that Americans have more money to buy stuff, well, prices are going to go up again. So you can't solve this problem with inflation 
because inflation is the problem. Because if you just print money and give it to people to spend, well, then it's going to mean that the prices are going to go up and they're not going to be able to buy stuff because it's going to cost more money. You can't make yourself rich by printing money. The limiting factor is not the money. The limiting factor is the production. It's the supply of goods. The money is irrelevant, right? The money is going to derive its value from how much goods that are produced. So the money supply could shrink because all that means is prices would go down. You have the same amount of goods, but if you have less money to buy them, well, then the prices for those goods are going to go down. But the limiting factor on consumption is the number of goods that you produce. If you simply produce more money and let people use it to buy stuff, well, prices just have to go up. That's what these guys don't seem to understand yet, that you can print money, but you can't print stuff. And also today, we got the housing market index, home builder sentiment, which was supposed to hold steady at 80, instead dropped down to 75. That's the lowest level in a year for home builder sentiment. Now, why are home builders down? After all, you've got record low mortgage interest rates, so people can borrow all kinds of money to buy homes. So what's the problem? The problem is the price of those homes is so high that even with the cheap mortgages, People still can't afford to buy. Now, why are new homes so expensive? Because it costs a lot of money to build them. Because inflation is driving up the cost of building homes. Both the raw material costs are going up and also the labor costs. So this is why home builders are worried because people can't afford their products. And that's why more and more of the homes that are being bought are the ones that already exist, the ones that have already been built. In fact, I mentioned on the last podcast that you now have the narrowest gap in history between the price of existing homes and the price of new homes because it's so expensive to construct new homes. They're not making as many, and now people are having to buy from the inventory that already exists, and they're bidding up those prices. And the Fed can't solve this problem by printing more money, because if they print more money, then those construction costs are going to go even higher. So it's like a dog trying to catch its tail. It's never going to do it. You know, in fact, we got to hear more from Fed Chairman Powell this afternoon. I was listening on YouTube. Powell had a town hall Q&A with a bunch of students and teachers, and he was there on Zoom uh, answering questions. And I want to talk about some of the comments he made. In fact, one of the comments relates to something I just said. Powell went out of his way to praise Congress for having the foresight to have passed the CARES Act. And the reason that Powell so admired Congress for what they did was because he said that Congress was able to replace the income that people lost due to the pandemic, right? Because a lot of people couldn't work. They were locked down at home. Their businesses were closed. And so they weren't making any money anymore. And so Congress replaced their lost incomes. And according to Powell, this was a good thing. And of course, in many cases, they didn't just replace their lost income. They augmented it. A lot of people were getting more money not working than when they earned money for working. Right? And that just compounded the problem. But what Powell doesn't seem to understand is the point I just made earlier that Congress was able to replace the income that people lost, 
but it wasn't able to replace the productivity that was lost. In other words, when people aren't on the job working, they're not producing. And the government doesn't replace that lost production. All it replaced was the income, but income is supposed to be tied to production. You help produce goods and services, and in reward, you get money, and now you can use that money to consume the goods and services that you produced. I mean, maybe not the identical goods and services, but when you're working, you're helping to fill up a bag with goods and services, and then you get paid, and now you have the right to reach into that bag and grab some of the goods and services that you help produce. But when all these people didn't go to work, they stopped putting stuff into the bag. But now the government gives them all this money so they can reach into the bag and grab stuff anyway. But if no one is putting stuff into the bag and everybody is reaching into the bag to grab stuff, they're going to end up empty-handed. And that's what's going on. Prices are going up. And Powell doesn't understand the difference between replacing the money and replacing the productivity. It's the stuff. It's the things that are produced that we need. What the proper monetary policy would have been, and again, I said this from the very beginning, when people are not producing and you're not getting the goods and services provided in the economy, the Fed needs to withdraw money from circulation. It needs the money supply to shrink alongside the supply of goods to maintain prices. If you increase the supply of money while you're simultaneously decreasing the supply of goods, prices are going to soar, which is exactly what we're experiencing right now. So we should not be praising Congress for doing the wrong thing. They should be condemned, as should the Federal Reserve, for being complicit in this activity. And I think also if Americans felt the pain more directly of a lot of the actions that were taken with respect to the lockdown, then the public would have opposed these policies and maybe they wouldn't have been enacted. I mean, one of the main reasons the government was able to get away with telling everybody they couldn't go to work was by saying, oh, by the way, we're going to pay you anyway. We're going to send you a check or we're going to send you more than you were making when you went to work. And then people were like, okay. But if the government said, look, nobody can go to work. Everybody's got to stay home, but you know, you're going to lose your income and deal with it. The public wouldn't have been willing to accept the lockdown. So the government was able to sugarcoat it by claiming that they're going to replace everybody's lost paychecks. But of course, they didn't replace any of the lost productivity. And so prices are going up. If we really were going to ask the American public to sacrifice, and if you remember, you know, again, Donald Trump, when this first happened, he was talking about World War II, saying Americans have to sacrifice. Okay, Americans actually sacrificed in World War II. You know, if you had a business and your sales really went down because your customers were off fighting the war, right, you didn't get bailed out by the government, even if your business closed because you didn't have enough customers because everybody was fighting the war. Or a lot of times during the war, so much of the supplies were being used for military production, there was a lot of shortages or a lot of stuff that businesses couldn't even sell. Even though customers wanted to buy the stuff, the stuff didn't even exist because the resources to make it were being used for the military. In fact, there was a lot of things that were being rationed during the war. So a lot of people sacrificed, but they weren't getting checks from the U.S. government. Trump didn't ask anyone to sacrifice. He said, hey, stay at home and we'll send you a check. If your business is suffering, don't worry. Get a PPP loan, forgivable loan. We'll give you some money. That was not the proper 
policy response to an emergency. If we really had a pandemic, if we really had a health crisis, then obviously people need to bear the financial consequences of that crisis. I mean, it's not a good thing, but it's reality. But what the government did is try to pretend that nobody actually had to suffer because the government can make everybody's pain go away simply by printing money. Well, they didn't make the pain go away. They actually exacerbated the pain. They just kicked the pain down the road a bit. And so now we're finally starting to catch up with that pain. Now, another point that Powell made in response to one of the questions, he was talking about recessions and the business cycle. And he talked about the need to prepare for recessions. He said, you know, it's not always going to be good times. We're going to have recessions and people need to be prepared. You have to be prepared for occasions where you may lose your job. The problem is, thanks to the Fed, nobody is prepared for a recession because nobody saves. Everybody spends everything they have when times are good. The Fed keeps interest rates low. Everybody is encouraged to spend. And so nobody saves anything for a rainy day. And so when it finally rains, it's the government that's got to come to everybody's rescue. The government's got to come with stimulus plans and all sorts of relief because the public has no ability to weather a storm on their own because they didn't take any precautions. But before we had the Federal Reserve, that's exactly what people did. People were prepared for recessions before the Federal Reserve created the moral hazard and the government that, hey, if there's bad times in a recession, you're going to get emergency stimulus money. You're going to get supplemental unemployment benefits. We're going to do all sorts of things to help you out so you don't have to do anything to help yourself. It was ironic, too, that Powell was actually talking about America before it had any central banks and how much stronger the banking system is and how much better the economy is now that we have a central bank when, again, the reverse is actually the case. We are much better off without a central bank and we would be better off without the Fed. Of course, we'd be better off without fiat money. We'd be better off if we were still on a gold standard, which is the monetary system that the founding fathers left us with. And of course, you know, we just went over on the last podcast that Nixon severed the last remaining links that the dollar had to gold and the constitution 50 years ago on Sunday. No, but also Powell talked about how it's very important that we avoid financial crises, which I thought was rich because, of course, the last financial crisis was caused by the Federal Reserve, right? And so now they're telling us that we have to make sure that we don't have any financial crises because of how bad the last one was without accepting responsibility for having been the architect of that crisis. But of course, rather than making sure that we avoid future financial crisis, the Federal Reserve is guaranteed that we have a future financial crisis. Because as long as the Federal Reserve is fighting recessions with 0% interest rates and quantitative easing, that guarantees a financial crisis as soon as those policies are reversed. And of course, the only way to avoid the financial crisis is to never reverse those policies. And that is exactly what the Fed is prepared to do. The Fed thinks that if it just keeps interest rates at zero forever and keeps doing QE forever, that we won't have another financial crisis. But what we end up having is something much worse. We have a dollar crisis. That is the crisis we get if we continue this reckless monetary policy because we're afraid of a financial crisis, we end up with a dollar crisis, which in and of itself is a financial crisis, just one that's much, much worse than one without a dollar crisis. Another interesting comment, though, that he made had to do with Paul Volcker, because Powell really expressed a lot of admiration for Volcker. 
He said he was a great man, truly a great man. In fact, he said that Volcker was probably the most distinguished public servant, at least in the financial sphere, in his lifetime. That's very high praise coming from a sitting Fed chair. And what Powell said he really liked about Volcker, what he really admired, was that Volcker was willing to do the right thing, even though doing the right thing was unpopular, right? That he really got tough and jacked up interest rates and fought inflation, even as a lot of the political winds were blowing against him because nobody wanted those high interest rates, but he stuck to his guns. And so history remembers him fondly because he's responsible for ending the inflation of the 1970s. Well, it's very interesting that Powell admires Volcker because Powell is the opposite of Volcker. He is doing everything to be popular. He is keeping interest rates at zero. He is doing QE because that's exactly what everybody wants. That's what the politicians want. That's what the people want. That's what Wall Street wants. He's not standing up to anybody. He is basically doing the opposite of what he's now commending Paul Volcker for having done. So if he admires those qualities, why does he have none of them himself? I mean, maybe that's why he admires Volcker because Volcker has the courage to do what he lacks. Maybe he knows that he's not doing anything like Paul Volcker. He knows that he doesn't have the spine to stand up to the politicians or to the media or to the public. And that's why he's caved in. And unlike Paul Volcker, he's taken the easy way out. And of course, unlike Paul Volcker, history will not look fondly on Powell, nor will it look fondly on Yellen or Bernanke or Greenspan. And finally, though, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in Afghanistan. And, you know, in many ways, our policy in Afghanistan reminds me of the Fed and its quantitative easing and 0% interest rates. Because what I said in the beginning, and the reason that I was so critical of the first QE program and the Fed's initial move on interest rates back down to zero, is I said, once you make this mistake, there's no turning back. You're checking into a monetary roach motel that, yes, it's very easy to bring interest rates to zero. It's easy to start a QE program. The hard part is winding it down. The hard part is raising interest rates back above zero because all you're doing by lowering rates to zero and doing QE is making the problems that you're trying to solve worse And so that ultimately, when you do get around to trying to end those programs, you now have a bigger mess on your hands than when you started because you exacerbated all the problems by keeping interest rates artificially low. And then when you finally allow interest rates to rise, well, now you have a much bigger disaster than the one that you would have had had you simply allowed interest rates to rise in the first place and never done QE. The reason I say that's very similar to our policy in Afghanistan is once the U.S. government came into Afghanistan, there was no way to get out. We were going to make the problems that we were trying to solve worse, which is why we were there for 20 years. And to his credit, at least, President Biden wanted to get out. But that's all the credit I'm going to give him because the way he got out was a complete disaster. But of course, we knew from the beginning that there was no easy way out. Biden admitted that himself at his fiasco of a press conference, but because there was no way out, we never should have gone in. 
And again, that's the same thing with QE and 0% interest rates. We never should have got in because it's impossible to get out. And if you think the chaos that we're seeing in Afghanistan is bad, and it's going to get worse, and there's going to be real uh, suffering because of human lives being lost, and I don't want to diminish that in its comparison, but on a big picture economic scheme, where do you see how bad it gets when either we end this monetary madness and we stop injecting the heroin into the economy or we have a dollar crisis because we overdose on stimulus but it's going to be so much worse than what we would have been confronting had we done nothing and that's the same thing with afghanistan you know the justification president bush went into afghanistan after 9-11 we got bombed and the whole idea is hey we have to make sure that afghanistan is not a place where you can incubate terrorists. We don't want the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or whoever it is. We don't want people launching, planning, masterminding terrorist attacks from Afghanistan. So we're going to go in there and we're going to take over that place and we're going to empower a government. We're going to train them and we're going to arm them and we're going to make sure that we have this stable country so that it will no longer be an incubator for terrorist attacks to be launched, you know, against Americans. So we go in there. We're there for 20 years. We spent $2.2 trillion in Afghanistan over 20 years. That's more than $100 billion per year, a complete waste. Now, what did we do with the money? Well, some of the money was spent on infrastructure. You know, I mean, roads and bridges and buildings and all sorts of stuff. We built that, Americans. Now, of course, there are a lot of private contractors that were in there working, but it was American money that paid the bills. But we also spent a lot of money training their military. I mean, we had our own military there. We had to spend a lot of money on the war itself in Afghanistan and then supplying and maintaining The troop levels that were over there, that was expensive. But a lot of our troops were training the Afghan troops to defend the country. And of course, not only did we provide them with a lot of training, right, how to use various weapons, we supplied them with all the weapons. We armed them to the teeth, right? So we brought all this military equipment and modern weapons and basically brought them into Afghanistan. Now, We pull out of Afghanistan and we leave all these weapons in the hands of the Afghan army without any idea. Somehow the Biden administration, with all the money we spend on intelligence, did not appreciate how easy the Afghan government would fall to the Taliban. And as soon as our troops are gone, right, the Taliban invades, the Afghanis surrender, and now all those weapons... All this modern warfare equipment, we're talking rifles, ammunition, they got heavy artillery, armored vehicles, helicopters. I mean, it's a treasure trove of arms that have now been acquired by the Taliban. They now are in control of the entire country of Afghanistan, and the country is in much better shape now than it was 20 years ago before we went in because we spent all this money improving their infrastructure and now we, they have all these, these arms. I mean, we basically took Afghanistan, right, packaged it up, gift-wrapped it, put a big bow on it, and then handed the whole thing to the Taliban as a, as a beautiful present. And now they have it, and now the Taliban 
is in better position now than they've ever been. They have more power. They have more ammunition. They're in a much better position. If their idea, if their goal is to fund terrorism and to incubate terrorist cells or plans and implement those plans outside of Afghanistan, they've never been better positioned to do those things than they are right now, thanks to America. Remember, I always talk about the road to hell being paved with good intentions. I mean, maybe there were good intentions, maybe not when we first went into Afghanistan, but look at the consequences. Government screws up everything that it does. We never should have gone in there. I was opposed to American intervention. I mean, if we just wanted to kill bin Laden, which we eventually did under Obama, we want to just go in there and kill him and get out. But you don't go in there, bring all this infrastructure in there, spend all this money, try to nation build, and, and, and then leave. I mean, at a minimum, once we made the mistake of going into Afghanistan, we needed to minimize the damage of getting out, right? The best thing would have been to never go in in the first place. But once we made the mistake of getting in, we had to figure out the least bad way to get out. And of course, one bad way, or one of the least bad ways, don't leave the weapons behind. Now, I know we thought we were leaving the weapons in the hands of the Afghan troops, but, you know, what's to stop them from surrendering? How long are they going to stay in the hands of the Afghan troops when if they lose or surrender, their weapons are now going to be controlled by whoever they surrender to? So it probably meant that we really needed to leave a U.S. military presence in there for a longer period of time just to keep the peace. In the meantime, what we also needed to do was get all of our people out. I mean, not just the Americans, but all the Afghans who had worked with Americans for over 20 years, people who were our allies. Because now, who knows, these guys could be executed, they could be beheaded or stoned in public. Who knows what the Taliban is going to do to American sympathizers? After all, they're traitors. They're the infidels. And this is going to be terrible for America's image around the world. I mean, we basically betrayed our allies. And of course, we've put the Taliban in a position to say they beat the United States. This is a big victory for the Taliban. I mean, they won, we lost. The war is over and the Taliban won. I mean, that is a fantastic recruiting commercial for the Taliban. And of course, now they have, you know, state-of-the-art ammunition and artillery to hand out to their new recruits. So they're in a great position to become even more powerful. And we put them in that position with this ridiculous foreign policy that we have of intervention and nation building. And again, one of the reasons that we conduct this type of foreign policy, one of the reasons we were able to blow $2.2 trillion in Afghanistan is because we got the reserve currency. We could print that money out of thin air and spend it. If it wasn't for our ability to manufacture the reserve currency, we never could have afforded to spend all that money in Afghanistan. But because of this monetary system, we were able to finance these expenditures. And in the process, we have weakened America's position in the world. And thanks to our involvement in Afghanistan, the world is now less safe than it would otherwise have been had we minded our own business.